Howdy hi and welcome to Travelling Symphony Movie Club. My name is John. And I'm Katie. Hi everybody. And this is our companion podcast for Jurassic Park, which is a podcast that Katie is particularly excited for. We've got two fantastic guests that we uh, heard from this week. One was Tom Fishenden from the Jurassic Park podcast, who's also at Tom underscore Jurassic on both Instagram and Twitter. And another one was Dr. David Button, a paleontologist and dinosaur researcher at the Natural History Museum. First of all, we're going to hear from Tom. And Katie, he just had so much knowledge and passion for these films, didn't he? Yeah, he really did. And what was so great about speaking to him before we watched it was, you know, when you just, someone makes you think about something in a different way, he really did that for me for these films and thinking about the characters and the, their story arcs. So it was really nice to watch the film again on Friday with that kind of new lens. Yeah, for a film that we've seen so many times, it was interesting how different a perspective you could gain on it even now. And of course, we also spoke to Dr. David Button and that was one of your favourite conversations we have had yet. I just loved it so much. Yeah, because I love science and everybody loves dinosaurs. So it was just the coolest chat ever. And I do have a bone to pick with friends. Is that a paleontology gag? Uh... <laughs> yep, because they make paleontology seem so boring. And it's yeah, like... just to clarify, you're talking about the TV show friends, not our friends. Our friends. Yeah, the TV show friends. Because they, because the whole running gag about Ross and his boring job, they make it seem so dull, but it's like the best thing ever. I want to be a dinosaur researcher. Well, maybe you can. Who knows? Career change. Yeah, it could happen. David also explained what the film was accurate with and what it wasn't accurate with as far as the dinosaurs are concerned, with some particularly eye-opening facts about the raptors. But first of all, we'll hear from Tom, and he started off by telling us why Jurassic Park's physical effects still make it such an enduring movie 27 years after its release. When you look at a film like this, it's really, really clear to see how effective filmmaking can be when you take the time and the money to really, really invest in that kind of visceral level of filmmaking. Say, for example, the T-Rex breakout sequence. The animatronic of the T-Rex actually malfunctioned when it's attacking the Ford Explorer. So the fear that the kids had in that sequence was genuine because a bit of the like flexiglass came in it wasn't meant to because the animatronic was pushing on it. That kind of stuff, while it's unpredictable and while it's dangerous, it gets a really, really real and grounded performance out of actors. And I think that in turn allows us to connect with their characters a lot more. Jurassic Park was kind of very, very self-aware of that at the time, because although it was pushing for VFX, and obviously it has now led to the whole industry we have where it's VFX focused as opposed to stop motion, the film was still very self-aware that in order to get meaningful performances, you can't always have everything rendered afterwards and you need to actually have things to have actors interact with so you can have a real connection, just like we would with those characters. So in that regard, I think that the film will always stand out to me as something which is a pinnacle of good filmmaking and a pinnacle of filmmaking that develops to technology while still keeping the very fundamental roots of what makes a good film in mind. In a way, that's always been Spielberg's genius, is that he's able to push the boundaries of what's possible whilst remaining true to 
just simply making a great film. The other thing it makes me think of is the droids in Star Wars because they were real physical things on set and they're one of the best things about the whole franchise but that is what makes them so good because they are real mm. they are characters and we love them as if they were mm. real people and i think you make a really good point with star wars as well actually because when you look at some of the behind the scenes for the more recent star wars films you get to see i think they call it the creature shop which is where they're making all the animatronics and you can actually see it they're taking the time out to animate background characters and things like that with actual animatronics as opposed to vfx that's the lasting effect that jurassic has had on the industry we were kind of at a crossroads with that film where we could have easily gone into something that was all green screen and all digital all the time but I think that it really made filmmakers kind of take a step back and think about where they draw the line with that and where they actually want to use a little bit more practicality in their filmmaking. It's what so many of the great filmmakers and the filmmakers that we really love aspire to keep that grounded. I was just thinking that as well Christopher Nolan because he does that as well and mm. you know tried to use as little as possible in Dunkirk and things like that so it's yeah it is interesting and there's a reason why some directors feel that that's really important i think yeah looking at another film that did it really well recently if you look at 1917 the factor in that trench sequence where they all run out every single person there was an extra just makes that so much more impactful because you kind of subconsciously know that every single person there has got a story like the people who it's representing as well so i think that it's a really really interesting case study in how just because we have new technology in filmmaking doesn't necessarily mean we always need to use it just because you could doesn't mean you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of touching on that and, and building slightly. One of the making virtues out of necessities that Spielberg did so well in this, and we were saying um, just a, you know recently with Jaws as well, in that holding the monster back and keeping it as a psychological horror of what in your imagination always makes it worse. Do you think the modern films still manage to achieve that? feels to me a little bit like it's been diluted somewhat or are there other examples you can think of that they still managed to, to retain that unfortunately coming from a marketing background i think a lot of the time the need to have something that really appeals to people can sometimes ruin a film so i mean looking at fallen kingdoms marketing as an example all of the key set pieces were shown in trailers so you then see the film and they have no impact because you don't get that reveal but i think that they're are still a few films that perhaps do it really well. As audiences, we're not necessarily as appreciative of that anymore. Modern cinema-going audiences really expect to kind of have these big set pieces. So a good example that I always believe is incredibly underrated is 2014's Godzilla. I think that the way they slowly build up to the reveal of Godzilla throughout that and use like really interesting cinematography to kind of hint at him is really, really well done. But a lot of people criticise that because they say that there's not enough of the monster in it. So it's kind of like getting that balance because I feel like modern audiences have that expectation now. Yeah, yeah, and it's something we actually spoke to Sanjeev about in our podcast a few weeks ago was the pace of films and how mm. slowly over time the pace of films has just increased and increased and increased. That does sort of leave directors and films with this dilemma of 
well, how can we build tension if we have to have some fight scene with 50 explosions in the first five minutes <laughs> of the film? And so, yeah, I can totally understand that, that that's a real, a real challenge. Revealing stuff in the trailer, that was also something that we spoke about with Simon uh, Chin for about Searching for Sugar Man. And they... Yeah, that was really interesting. I actually listened to that before we came on. And the whole, should we reveal this big plot twist in the trailers, I think is such an important crux of how marketing can be detrimental to films sometimes. Again, going back to Fallen Kingdom as my example, the scene where the T-Rex roars in front of the volcano was revealed in one of the very first marketing trailers. So you then go in and see that film and instantly there's no stakes because, you know, Owen's not at any risk. I've already seen the sequence <laughs> after this. I know that yeah. So I think that in that case, it was right to not reveal that because otherwise you kind of take away from the impact that that has on your audience. I was also wanted to ask you about your amazing community of Jurassic Park mm. fans that has built up. How did you discover uh, this and and could you explain a little bit about what it is and how it works and all of the stuff that that is done within the community? I'm kind of again a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to the Jurassic community as a whole, but I think that with the way this community works, especially, it's kind of fostered on the whole idea of online content creation. So obviously, it's something that you see a lot more, especially in franchises like Star Wars, where you have a lot of fan sites and things like that. And I think that that naturally has come up in Jurassic as well, where people want to share things with each other. And social media is a really good platform to do that. And because of that, there's loads of different things that have popped up. There's obviously Jurassic Park podcast, which I know both of you discovered. There's a really great website called Jurassic Outpost, which covers all of the Jurassic news. There is Collect Jurassic, who look at Jurassic toys and collectibles, and a whole plethora of other community members out there who all have their little niche within the community that they really enjoy and want to share it with each other. So it's really nice. It's kind of taking the power of social media and using it to connect with people, much like you guys do with the podcast as well. It's like old-fashioned pen pals almost, but obviously with the power of Twitter instead keeping us much more connected. <laughs> It's amazing. I love it. Um, what do what do the community or what did the community as a whole make of the Jurassic World um, series of films when they came out? Was it like a, a positive thing or was it a negative thing? The major reference point I would have is Star Wars, where it seems like every film is just polarizes and it's either amazing or it's dog shit. And <laughs> is it is it what was the community reaction to the new ones? I think it's been quite mixed, to be honest with you. I think that a lot of younger fans like myself have really resonated with the newer films because obviously it gives us a chance to be more engaged with things. But I know that a few of my friends who have been in the community for much longer feel like Jurassic World didn't necessarily build on plot threads from the first three films. So although it tries to build on things, I was actually having this discussion with somebody literally before this pod, and <laughs> he was saying that it feels like it had to retcon a lot to try and make it fit. So it kind of felt more like it was a forced sequel than necessarily something which felt organic. But I mean, for me personally, I think that it's a really interesting example of taking the original concept from the first film and actually fully realising it and kind of showing us what that part could have looked like if it was functioning. So I think there's very much that split down the middle where people are either big fans of it, they like the way it's come back, or they don't like it and they feel like it's inconsistent with the past. But you get that with anything. I mean, like you say, look at the reaction to The Force Awakens. and If anything, that reaction 
for me, always shows that the original source material was so good because people feel so connected with it. They feel such an ownership over it that they don't want it to be ruined or done in any way that they don't mm. like it. So it's more, you know, a testament to how good the originals were mm. rather than actually anything to do with the new films. Mm. I think it's interesting as well because it's kind of an interesting look at, again, film as a whole. Because obviously when Jurassic Park came out, it was very much standalone film pieces. E.T. is another good example, standalone film that was really, really good. Back when these kinds of films were being developed, they were always being pictured as sort of self-enclosed stories. So then when you begin to build a franchise around something, it doesn't necessarily always have the impact that you want it to because you're kind of trying to force those things. It's a side effect of the film industry. People want to be able to make more money out of their projects, and I understand that. But I think that sometimes that can have a detrimental impact on creativity because it kind of feels forced, like there's always got to be a sequel there's got to be something that comes afterwards what are some of your standout moments when you think back to jurassic park are there any favorite scenes or moments that you think really exemplify what it is that it's trying to achieve one of the best moments is the moment with hammond and ellie when hammond's eating the ice cream and he's still very very persistent about his dream because there's always that quote of Creation is an act of sheer will, and next time it'll be flawless. Because I think that that perfectly encapsulates the whole idea that we're so focused on achieving something, we're not stopping to kind of think about the consequences. As that character comes to the realization that actually people are in danger and his dream has caused them to potentially get killed by this thing, you kind of start to see that all fall apart as it goes into the final act. And then obviously we get the getaway from the T Rex. So I think that is a really nice way of kind of communicating how in our naivety we don't always see the consequences of our actions until it's too late, which is something that I think was very important to Crichton and something that he wanted to communicate in the novel and obviously the film as well. But then I think there's other really, really interesting sequences like the sequence with Nedry when he's obviously trying to escape, he crashes his jeep. And you see him just discredit the Dilophosaurus that appears. The sentence he says is, you're not so bad, I thought you were one of your big brothers. So that as well really perfectly shows us not taking notice of nature and not appreciating it for what it really is, because we're just discounting it, thinking, no, we're better than it, we don't actually need to value it. He gets killed by it. So I think that it perfectly encapsulates that, again, naivety, but also that reluctance to actually appreciate our relationship with nature for what it is. I suppose consequences towards the end where you have sequences with even Muldoon, for example, who's meant to be an expert, he's a game warden, he ultimately underestimates them and we get the clever girl scene. So I think that there's lots of these scenes that really kind of perfectly communicate these two very core themes of us, A, not understanding nature and not appreciating it and therefore underestimating it, but B, also not taking responsibility and accountability for our actions as well. All the, that you mentioned in that sort of highlights how good the narrative structure is of the film. And it's something that probably goes underappreciated in the whole, the fanfare of what a, a visual spectacle it is and what it, how far ahead of its time it was. A lot of people don't realise that it is definitely Hammond's story. Having a dream, 
realizing that the dream doesn't work but not quite wanting to accept it and then gradually over the course of the film it's his dream kind of breaking and falling apart until he realizes that ultimately he can't pursue it anymore that one sequence at the very end where they're on the helipad and he just kind of stands there looking back across the park for a moment is so powerful because you kind of get that raw emotion and you realize that this is somebody who has envisioned this their whole life it's just being torn apart in front of them and now they don't know what they're going to do next and i think that that is such a powerful end point for the story and obviously you've got them going off into the sunset because you've got to have a happy ending <laughs> but <laughs> i think that that is kind of such just a great bookend for the first film and it really kind of rams home those emotions that are at stake throughout the story at the start of the film and like you say when when hammond isn't seeing what's really happening and he is turning a blind eye, you're very frustrated with his character mm. and you feel like, oh, this idiot, these idiots, what are they doing? So I think that you don't really see it from his perspective very mm. much at all, if at all, maybe not even at that end point. But like, but like you say, there are bits towards the end where you do start to realise that. But there's so many different layers because I know that a lot of people like to say how this could be Malcolm's story because ultimately it is showing that chaos is inevitable and you can think that you've got control over something, you can put as many contingencies in place as you want, but eventually something is going to happen that you can't predict. So it's fascinating. You can still have really engaging conversations about it so many years later because I think, like you say, that highlights just how powerful this film is that people can still get different perceptions and new ideas from it even today yeah yes and that is such a fantastic concept that again i hadn't really thought of with the film is that everyone is presented with the same situation and everyone reacts differently depending on their character who they are what their core beliefs about life and themselves and the world around mm. them is and it's something that will never change we will always be presented with big challenges and we will always look at them in completely different ways but in the end have to work together mm. somehow to get through it and i mean it's so interesting as well because when you look at it every character kind of has an arc so when you look at alan for example he starts the film absolutely hating kids he doesn't want kids and by the end of it you have the last scene with him with lex and tim either side to kind of emphasize the story that his character has gone through through the film and i think that that's true for all of them to some extent they all realize that different things that they thought were either not true or are true and it's very much a case of you can look at it through different lenses and kind of get a different takeaway from it every time i really loved talking to tom fishenden just a wealth of knowledge about jurassic park but also just a really keen observer about film in general and the way that things like marketing can butt up against the film industry. It's just really, really brilliant to, to talk with him. So now we will hear from Dr. David Button, Katie's new hero. As we mentioned in the intro, one of your favourite conversations we've had so far. Do you want to tease maybe a little bit about what your favourite thing was that we talked about? <sighs> so many things, so many things, John. There is a point in the chat where I liken paleontology to being like a science detective. So that's the point where I start getting really excited, I think. That point was about four minutes into the conversation. Cool, good, good, good. So really, any, everything from there, all the bits are amazing. I think the best thing is actually learning what a paleontologist does and that it's so much more than what you think. It's not just 
brushing, dusting off old bones. So like learning about all the tools that they use and the methods and how much information they actually do have is amazing. But also the fact that it relates so much to the world today and learning about animals and evolution and everything that's around us now is how we also learn about the past and that's really cool. So let's hear from David and he started off by explaining how much we can actually be sure about what the dinosaurs were like and the incredible advancements in their research techniques in recent years. So obviously from the skeleton you can get a general idea of what the animal looked like but in terms of bulking that out we need quite specialized tools to do that. So we can get an idea of an animal's musculature from scars and other features in the bones. And to ground that, we have to look at living animals, so mostly birds and crocodiles, um, but also some other ones as well, and look at how features in their bones correlate with particular soft tissues. So particular kinds of muscle, um, beaks, particular kinds of skin, that kind of thing. So we can start to rebuild those in dinosaurs from that. Um, and then in terms of what they were covered in, for that we rely upon exceptional preservation so things like where and we've seen the specimens in china where there's been rapid like mud burial and you have like whole dinosaurs pancakes you can see all their feathers and that kind of thing in other cases skin impressions are often quite limited so something which i think people often not often also forget is that for many dinosaurs we have like impressions of scaly skin but they'll only be from individual parts of the body and so it could be hard to restore the whole thing so tyrannosaurs are a great case of that because there was some argument between whether tyrannosaurs had scales or naked skin and so on. And it just was because different tyrannosaur specimens had these from different parts of the body. And we had to get several together to like put in a map of what tyrannosaurs look like across the body. So a lot of paleontology relies upon essentially taking an animal and comparing it to its relatives and using that to get an idea about the likelihood of how it looked like this relative versus that relative. So we can, we can get a decent idea, but equally, we're always getting new methods that show us stuff which we'd never thought would be possible. So a big thing there is like with colour. Even when I was a nipper reading all like me um, dinosaur books, it said we'll never know what colour they were. But now in some circumstances, people have found pigment cells preserved so we could start to reconstruct colour in some dinosaurs. In, even though it's worth noting that only particular kinds of colour are caused by those pigment cells, so we can get an idea of some of the colours these dinosaurs might have had, but we still don't know about what other kinds of colours they might have had from different kinds of pigment. That was my understanding of it that we didn't know, but that's really cool that there's this new new tools. We can only pull certain colours from certain specimens, but still it gives us the kind of data we'd never have had otherwise. Like, I don't know if you're also like wondering about how we reconstruct lifestyle as well as appearance. Because we see different animals through time have evolved the same kind of features over and over and over. So um, convergent evolution is what we term it. We, if we see those features in a dinosaur, we can usually infer that, okay, that evolved for a similar reason. So like if we see sharp, hooked, serrated teeth, we can say, oh, okay, that thing was carnivorous because it was gripping and cutting flesh. And if we see iguana-like or grinding teeth, we can be like, okay, that looks like a herbivorous animal. People look at the wear in dinosaur teeth, so both the shape of like large-scale wear facets on the teeth, but also microscopic scratches on the teeth. And these can reveal what dinosaurs were eating and how they did it. I do biomechanics. So we reconstruct dinosaur muscles and we use those data to produce with engineering software models of dinosaurs where we can test different behaviours and we can get an idea of the kind of behaviours they did and then stuff like how hard they could bite, how fast they could move. The nice thing about paleontology is it combines loads of different kinds of evidence. So like whereas some sciences like 
can be more canalized. In paleo, some people do like geochemical analyses. Some people do look at microware. Some people will reconstruct muscles and they'll be able to pull all these different parts of methods and data from all these different things, which I think is quite cool. This is yeah. so, that's so cool. It's like being a science detective. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating because I think that there might be a bit of uh, received wisdom or, or thought that you would just like get a dinosaur skeleton, dust off the bones, and then it's just this one thing. Yeah. And you're like, okay, we can determine from this skeleton that this was the case. But the fact that you're piecing together lots of bits from lots of different things to create a fuller picture is something I don't think maybe people would traditionally appreciate. Whenever you talk to people, the thing which always gets me is when you hear that apparently they've decided. And like you always hear people say like, oh, apparently they've decided. And it's always like there's quite like a detailed level of things to it. It's not just we decided one morning they could do this. <laughs> yeah. Some people think, oh, well, the scientists, they will say this. It's like, do you know scientists? If there's any ambiguity, they'll definitely try and undermine each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the it, it's the way that it works. <laughs> well, oh, that kind so of leads good. us on to um, an interesting question that was in the news this week. Mm that about the raptors and the fact that there's this new study that suggests that they didn't hunt in packs. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what that study may have found and, and whether this is the case or not? I should let you know, everything you know about raptors is a lie, <laughs> more or less. This has like always been the case. They weren't that fast compared to other quite small theropods. Their legs were quite stocky because they need them to grip prey, which would compromise their running ability. They were smart for a dinosaur. That means they're like about as smart as like a living bird, not like a chimp, like they were in Jurassic Park 3 or a dolphin or anything. They couldn't really open doors because um, uh, their hands, so dinosaur wrists, they couldn't curve them that this way. So they were more like upturned rather than downturned. Yeah, they're like just facing inward. So if you think like a bird's wings, it's the same. In terms of pack hunting, so the evidence for pack hunting has always been quite weak. So it's based upon this animal called uh, Deinonychus. Um, and it's because skeletons of Deinonychus are often found alongside an ornithopod um, called Tenontosaurus. And Deinonychus was about the size of a human, whereas Tenontosaurus um, weighed in at a ton or more. So obviously a single Deinonychus is far too small to take out this big plant eater. Four skeletons of a Deinonychus, were, well, no, sorry, five, four adults and a juvenile were found alongside a Tenontosaurus skeleton. And so it was suggested that, okay, maybe these animals had teamed up to kill the much bigger animal. That's been about it. The only other evidence which there's been is some footprints of six raptors walking in the same direction. Obviously, that doesn't show why they were traveling together. They could have just been going between locations together. They could have been like breeding or something. We don't really know. And so other people have shed doubt on this. They've said, you know, maybe these Dionychus were just scavenging the Tenontosaurus because some of the skeletons show signs that they've been fighting each other. So it might have been they were scavenging them and then they had a fight and they some of them killed and ate each other and they were cannibals. Or it might have been that they were um, like opportunistically mobbing the Tenontosaurus, like one had attacked it and the others just joined in. So it's difficult to really say that there's evidence of cooperative hunting. And what this new study has done is it's looked at isotopes of the bones. So different kinds of plants and other sources will store different isotopes. So as, as those go up through the food chain, that means that um, predators will inherit different kinds of isotopes from the things that they eat. And so these are fractionated between young Deinonychus and adults, which essentially shows that the youngsters and the adults are feeding on different things. So the adults seem to have been eating herbivorous dinosaurs, 
whereas the youngsters were eating like smaller animals and like some freshwater animals and that kind of thing. And what that suggests is that they weren't forming like wolf packs where juveniles and adults are working together and the adults are forming juveniles. It seems the adults and the juveniles must have been living separately if they're having different diets. There's very little evidence of pack hunting in theropods in general, but that doesn't mean they didn't do it. So it's, it's really hard to prove behavioral things like this because it's a case of like, yeah, they could have. There's no particular reason why they couldn't. Modern birds of prey will hunt cooperatively. Even crocodiles will hunt cooperatively. But equally, we don't know it either. So, you know, it's entirely speculative. So raptors are this group called dromaeosaurs. I think the impressive thing with them is they're a group that seems particularly specialized towards hunting things smaller than them. You think of the big like talon on the foot. In Jurassic Park, people interpret it as they're saying it used it to disembowel like large prey. But the claw shape is more of a piercing shape. And in fact, it's almost identical in shape and size to the large claw on the second toe of an eagle. So it seems likely they used it in the same way. So eagles pin prey by gripping with the claws beneath them, and then they get it with the jaws. So it seems likely that raptors probably hunted in a similar way, where they'd have pinned an animal smaller than it beneath it under their body weight. And we see that their feet um, have adaptations, as I said earlier, compromising their running speed, giving them very strong grip speed. So they'd grip the prey beneath it, and then they'd bring in the jaws to start tearing out meat. So that suggests that they're hunting things of a similar size to them or smaller and on their own. But crucially, it does mean that you would still be alive when they start to eat you. Oh, wow. I, I feel like they're the most overhyped animals in the history of the world. <laughs> it's not like their fault. It's just uh, it's just the way that things have turned out. Uh, yeah. I do feel like if I'd have had some of this knowledge as a young child, it could have saved me years of nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something I should also make sure um, is clear is that even with the Anaxes, it's still a good, great movie, right? Yeah, of course, of course. That's a thing, right? Because it's a solid sci-fi story and the dinosaurs in it are used in a very, like, effect, as very effective metaphors. Mm. Yeah. Unlike some of the later films, Anaxes doesn't matter because it's not the point. I know some of my colleagues can get very worked up about Anaxes. It was like, it doesn't matter. It's, just, it's a movie. People know it's a movie. Like, obviously, it's fun to nitpick and it's good that people learn the differences from it. But I think, like, it's still a good movie. I suppose we should probably talk about the other big one in the movie, the T-Rex, and how that is portrayed. Mm -hmm. I know that that could be quite different to what it was like in real life, but it would be really great to know what a T-Rex was like. The T-Rex is probably more broadly accurate than, certainly more so than the raptors, because we know now that raptors would be fully decked out in feathers. Tyrannosaurus, well, Tyrannosaurus in general, seem to have largely been covered in scaly skin, probably some areas of unscaled skin. We know the ancestors of Tyrannosaurus were feathered, but it seems that big, like later big Tyrannosaurus, like Tyrannosaurus itself, either had either entirely or mostly lost their feathers. So that sort of thing's broadly accurate. The big thing with Tyrannosaurus, though, is in the movie where it can't, you know, it can't see you if you stop moving. Obviously, like big predators don't work like that. The movie has a get out in that because they're splashed with frog DNA, and that's kind of how um, toads and frogs work. And even then, it's not so much they can't see things that are still. It's almost like noise cancelling software in their brain. Like when things move, they then go, "Okay, that's price." So they don't try and eat rocks and stuff. But we know that Tyrannosaurus actually seems like it had quite good vision. So like its eyes faced um, partially forward, so it'd have overlapping fields of vision, so it'd have like good depth perception. Certainly you'd be able to see things standing still. And the other standout scene, which is memorable, is like when it's chasing the Jeep. So how fast Tyrannosaurus can move is highly uncertain. 
but it seems it probably couldn't run that fast. Its top speed is like fully revised every six months or so. Because <laughs> there's um, basically kind of two arguments. There's first of all, just how strong it was. So we know that Tyrannosaurus had very high muscle masses on the legs. And this would have at least made them very agile. It seems that they've been able to turn quite um, deftly. And that's going to be important because Tyrannosaurus is fighting things like Triceratops all day. And if it doesn't want to get skewered on a horn, it has to be quite like deft. But how fast they can actually run is less certain. Because if you're something that big with little arms not to protect yourself, if you're running and you trip, you die. Because you'll just like face plant into something. And if like nine tons of hurtling mass face plants into a rock, then it's game over. So that's why Tyrannosaurus probably is an adult, probably moving at similar speed to a human. I doubt that it could run as fast as like a sprinter, like some people would Some people would have it. But what's important to remember about Tyrannosaurus is it changed a lot as it grew. At younger growth stages, it was much more lithe and the skull was shallower. So it seems that when Tyrannosaurus was young, it would have been like a petite predator of faster prey. And as it got older, it became a more heavily built animal to, to fight more heavily armored prey. So this way, because parental care was probably limited, it just cared for itself in different ways as it grew up, which I think is quite cool. That's something we see in quite a lot of dinosaurs, but it's particularly well studied in tyrannosaurs because people love tyrannosaurs. Working out how something moved in the first place is quite difficult. Relatively recently, we suggested that tyrannosaurus might have done like a knee-driven like power walk, which might have meant that it was faster than previously expected and that kind of thing. So it is quite difficult to pin these down. You sort of mentioned that when you do this investigation work, you look to other animals for how the T-Rex might have moved. So what is the most similar animal that we might know of today to compare it to in terms of that like movement and how it might have been? Because I can kind of picture the raptors as like a bit smaller, more bird-like with feathers. I can kind of visualize how that would work and how they would move and be like, but I still can't really wrap my head around like the size of the T-Rex and how this thing, what would it have been like? Mm. The awkward thing as well with like things like Tyrannosaurus is the main muscles like retracting the leg is a, is a chordofemoralis which attaches to the thigh and to the tail. And so you also see that like in living crocodiles, but obviously we don't see it in living birds because they've lost their tails. And so as you go through theropods close to the birds, you get this whole rearrangement of leg muscles. And obviously you don't see it in mammals either because their tails, they've got very different musculature. So there's not really anything that would move that similar to it today. It seems to me like it's a bit of a cross between like a really big muscly bird and an alligator. You're right, because it's like it's because the tail is important in driving the legs. So I remember there was an experiment once where people attached fake tails to chickens to see how that would affect their movement because that means obviously they've got this counterbalance that they don't normally have and that did kind of edit their posture that kind of thing i guess would be the best way to try and understand it although i'm not necessarily sure it's a good avenue for animal experimentation <laughs> although the chickens weren't harmed or anything so like it didn't really but affect. they could have had so, a sore back yeah and it is a weird thing to do <laughs> it's just like the other chickens <laughs> Other chickens will make fun of them. But, well, maybe not. Maybe they'll say, no, I've got like a big tail. And the other chickens will be, be ultra jealous. Yeah. yeah. There's no there's no way of, no, we'll have to do a more, you know, society. We're going to have to do an in-depth dive analysis. into that, the, the chicken alligator. <laughs> but like, even then, of course, they're like, their muscles like still hadn't changed or anything. So yeah, it's inherently difficult to envision what they'd move like. But as you say, I guess you'd have to think of like an ostrich but much bigger and with like an alligator's tail on the back. It's just not something that's easy to get, get at. 
Another thing that I think people are always asked about or people are always talking about is the T-Rex's tiny arms and what the hell is going on there? We see miniaturization of arms in a few theropod lineages. So infamously in T-Rex, we've got tiny arms. It's really because they don't need them as weapons anymore because the head is so focused as like this massive weapon that long arms just kind of get in the way. The way I've heard to describe what they'd been like almost is like a land shark in that they just would be mouth first when they attack things, then clamp down on it and rip out flesh and so on. But the arms still were muscled and still functional in Tyrannosaurs at least. So it's possible they may have used them to help grip prey close to the body whilst they were biting them, because obviously they wouldn't want them sort of getting away. Or they could have been used for other tasks, like helping them to get up and so on. But really it's because they weren't needed as weapons anymore. So they just sort of um, shrunk down. Just a giant head on legs running around. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) Just so incredible. I wish we could just see one now. It would be so cool. Well, one of the key messages in Jurassic Park is the way that we misunderstand animals and we misunderstand nature. And um, one of the quotes in the film is that they're, they're not monsters, they're just animals. And we were just wanted to ask if you feel like there's a, a mass perception difference between the way that we perceive dinosaurs and how they actually were and how terrifying they actually are. Were they more like animals that we would see today in their behaviours or are they actually... Are they as terrifying as we think they are? Yeah. <laughs> As with other things, like they would just be animals and they behave like animals. Like whenever you see them and things and it's like, you know, it's always a super persistent predator that will chase people across like a whole island. Like I think Jurassic Park potentially is a get out there because they're animals that are in captivity and might be resentful or something. But um, but overall, um, you know, dinosaurs would just be animals that act in the same way. Like if they were hungry, obviously they'd pursue you or if they felt threatened. But otherwise, they behave like an animal, you know, self-preservation, not overly aggressive. But then we misunderstand animals today as well. Like with sharks and snakes and things, people think of them as monsters. Um, well, you know, it's an animal. If you don't threaten it and or you don't provoke it, it will leave you alone. Dinosaurs certainly aren't scarier than anything we've got today. And another question I had was around the size of dinosaurs. It seems that this is something that is not obviously not around anymore so was it impractical to be that big or why why were they so big and why aren't their animals that big now that's a very good question it's something a lot of people are always working on and it's something it is important to remember is that most dinosaurs were within the range of what we've seen like in mammals so many of them were around sort of rhinoceros to elephant sized but there were some particularly the long-necked sauropods or some of the duck-billed dinosaurs and horned dinosaurs that got significantly larger and so there's a lot of work as to why exactly this was Um, And it's not entirely pinned down, but my feeling is I think the key difference is egg laying versus gestation. Because you think of a large mammal, a mother will have to carry a calf for a long amount of time. She'll only be able to carry like one if she's of a large size and that it places big energetic demands on her and it places just mechanical demands like weight demands on her. Like even elephant is something like once every two years or that kind of thing. So they have a very low birth rate. And we can see the problems of that today with elephants, whereby their populations take a long time to recover. So that's going to be very precarious over like long timescales. So if you think of a giant like sauropod dinosaur, so like something, you know, over 10 times heavier than elephant. Like we found sauropod clutches between 16 to 30 eggs, but we think they probably laid multiple clutches per year. So they could produce like hundreds of eggs, just bury them and leave them. And only a fraction of those babies will reach adulthood. But it still means if there's a disaster and wipes those sauropods out, they can quickly recolonize. And they don't have the same burdens of having to carry a calf and then give birth to it. 
I think that's a very important difference. And it also means, as we spoke earlier about Tyrannosaurus, how they fill different like ecological niches as they grew, we've got evidence of other dinosaurs doing that. So they wouldn't have been like suckling a calf for long amounts of time. And then that calf would grow up and compete with them in the same ecosystem. The different growth stages would be having different lives. So you could fit more large dinosaurs in one area than large mammals. There's probably other differences as well, like metabolism. So that we know that like young dinosaurs grew very, very quickly. As they get older, their metabolism probably slowed. So they wouldn't need as much food as a large mammal. I think it's just a combination of these different factors that enable them to get bigger. So another thing is they had like air sacs like birds. So birds have a very efficient lung. And we know from features of the bones that dinosaurs have the same sort of lung systems that would help them get bigger. So I think it's just that mammals don't get to those size today because of they're warm-blooded and because they just ate young, whereas living reptiles are too slow growing. It would take them too long to reach that size. And modern birds who are fast growing and lay eggs like dinosaurs, although not all of them fly, they went through a flying bottleneck and now they've got all these characteristics to lighten the skeleton. Um, which makes it difficult for them to reach large sizes again. So I think it's just dinosaurs have this unique combination of characteristics. Much of my work's been on feeding in the big sauropod dinosaurs. And so obviously I think that's important as well. So I think apart with that, I think they just hit a unique strategy. Because if you think like the Brachiosaurus, their head's like quite small. People are like, oh, how on earth could this get enough food? Well, you have to think about it. If you only had incisors, how small your head would be just to fit those in, because they didn't have the versions of molar teeth. And we used to think they instead ground the food of stones, but that doesn't actually seem to have been the case. So people used to think that because of little polished stones they found in dinosaur skeletons. And they thought, oh yeah, those are gastrous that they turn like modern birds have. But in a study, which I really like the study where they fed uniform cubes to ostriches because they use a gastric meal like this and looked at the stones that came out and they found they weren't polished. They were like a braided, like a texture. And moreover, the volumes you find like in sauropod skeletons at least, there aren't enough there. So though we have good evidence of gastroliths in like ostrich dinosaurs like Gallimimus, we don't in sauropods because they're so big, they could have massive guts. So they could ferment plants for ages, a bit like a modern tortoise, to get like goodness out of them without chewing them. They combined really high intake rates with like long, like really complete digestion. But those things don't really work together because the more you eat, the more you force through your digestive system. But just by being so big, they broke that link. So they're able to do this just because they were so big. So I think that really helped them like unlock these large body sizes. That's something which is difficult for any other animal group to do because it's hard for them to get that big in the first place. On that point, because I know that there are some elephants that have to eat something like ridiculous amount of food. So is it true that potentially that's what those sauropods would have to do? They would have to just eat all day? So one thing, elephant digestion isn't very efficient because they eat lots and that forces it through it quite quickly. Also, the big slowing step with elephants is chewing because elephants have to spend like up to like 18 hours a day chewing. Because if you think like it takes quite a long time to chew up mouthfuls of food. And also, as you get bigger, chewing gets less efficient because if you just think like mice will chew their food into smaller particles and elephants will. So I think the fact that sauropods didn't chew might have been important because they might have just hit a body size whereby chewing wouldn't be particularly effective anymore. And they'd have to spend more than 24 hours a day chewing. Interestingly, some of the other dinosaurs, things like the duckbill dinosaurs and the horn dinosaurs, but particularly the duckbills, they had more efficient chewing mechanisms. So they might have been more comparable to an elephant. And in, indeed, most duckbills were similar to an elephant in size, even though even though a few of them did get much, much bigger. Elephants are like a weird case, like an, an interesting particular case. So they might have skewed our ideas a bit about how large animals work. And I think that's why paleontology is really important, because like living animals... They're one snapshot of what life can do. And they're a really biased snapshot because humans have wiped out loads of them, like even before like recorded history. 
And so if we don't have paleo, we don't really understand biology. Before we found giant dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals in the fossil record, people thought that you couldn't get bigger than an elephant on land. And like they had good reasons for believing that. And then we find all these things and like, well, what's this? This is like something completely different. What's going on here? Yeah. And you hear about all these crazy things that you see like deep, deep down in the ocean that are like alien fish practically, you know, that we can never even comprehend. And that's stuff that's here now. <laughs> I admit this does wind me up a bit. Like, okay, this is like my own opinion, obviously, but people get so worked up about what's in space. I was like, well, yeah, but what's in the sea? What's in the sea and what's in the ground, both as in microbes living deep underground and also like fossils in the ground? What's going on there? But people are interested in different things, right? That's what makes the world go round, so I shouldn't complain. But um, uh, uh, yeah, I just, I'm just bitter because, well, a very accurate thing about the characters in Jurassic Park, I think are really accurate. And a very accurate part of that is Ian Malcolm as a mathematician being very sneering and condescending towards the soft scientists along with him. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, probably, yeah. I'm be, definitely being unfair here, but definitely the whole, so uh, y- you guys dig dinosaurs, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've definitely had that. And like, absolutely, I've had that from people. But um, I'm not saying, obviously, I'm, I'm, obviously, that's only like a few individuals. It's not like most of them. Do we have any way of knowing how old dinosaurs could have reached in as like what their age limits were, how how long they lived, that's the question I'm asking. So if you cut open a dinosaur bone, uh, you can see growth rings like in a tree. Um, so you can use this to an extent to work out how old they were growing. It doesn't always work because at parts in their life, they may have been growing too quickly where they won't leave rings. And when they get older, the bones are remodeled, so you lose them. But even then, you can use textures to get an idea of how fast dinosaurs are growing. And so from this, we do have ages from some dinosaur skeletons. So we have some for some sauropods, for example, showing they're like about 30. Some of them were about 30 when they died. But obviously, we don't know why they died. We don't know if it was from old age or not. But a very interesting thing we can do here is we can use them across dinosaur populations of different sizes to get an idea about their growth rate and how quickly it took them to grow through time. And so studies on some like sauropods, but also on tyrannosaurs and some duckbill dinosaurs suggest that most dinosaurs grew very quickly when they were young. They'd have reached um, sexual maturity in like their teens, but they wouldn't have reached full body size maturity until their 20s. They didn't reach huge sizes by just growing like reptiles for a long time, like we used to think, is that they grew very quickly when they were young. In a way, their growth stages are kind of comparable to ours. I just think they're much bigger than us, but like they'd have hit their teenage years and then their adult years at a similar kind of time. So it seems likely that some of them could live to like, particularly big ones, to like 60 or 80 perhaps. It's it's very difficult to get an idea of maximum lifespan because even the specimens we have, we don't know if they were killed or if they died of old age or anything. And it's also important to remember that like wild animals very rarely die of old age. A remarkable thing, most dinosaur skeletons we have, even though they seem huge, most of them still hadn't finished growing. The chances of reaching adulthood were so low that most dinosaurs at any one time would have been immature. And then there'd be a few like big old adults because once you reach full body size as well, you're going to be relatively safe from attacks because, you know, predators will always go for the weaker, smaller animals. Another big line from the movie is one of John's favourites. They do move in herds. <laughs> <laughs> With the, the sauropods, Obviously, you mentioned that obviously they were egg-laying. How likely is it, if they were egg-laying, for them to actually have moved in herds? 
So we do know they moved in herds um, from trackways. So we can see that many individuals moved together, particularly from horned dinosaurs and duckbills. We have bone beds, which show where large numbers died together due to floods or some other incident. But even the sauropods, we have some bone beds. But what seems to have been variable is the makeup of those herds, because there's some trackways and bone beds which suggest that the herds were age segregated. So you had juvenile herds and adult herds. But there's others that show adults and youngsters together, possibly indicating that they were kept guarding them or caring for them in some way. So it seems it probably varied a lot between species. So although herding behaviour was quite common, um, the makeup of those herds just varied a lot between like individual species of dinosaur. But I remember got an interesting question once, actually, from somebody asking about dinosaur gender. And obviously that's a very difficult thing to get at because birds are very diverse in like gender expression. Um, between different species, like um, roles and expression vary a lot. We can assume that dinosaurs were similar, but we don't like we don't really know. So we know that, for example, the horned dinosaurs used their horns to fight each other because we've got some like perforations and skulls and things, and they probably use their frills and crests to show off. But we don't necessarily know why or what kind of interactions that meant they were having. So it means that we know that some of them had complex social lives, but it's difficult to say much more than that. So it definitely wouldn't work to do a park where you make all females. We don't know. Life might find a way. I think they'd they'd probably still manage, but they might not be fulfilled. (laughs) But um, but I guess that's the thing, really, when you come to whether it's ever really ethical to, like, clone an extinct animal. Uh, something which is actually quite relevant because people have obviously talked about it in mammoths and even other things like passenger pigeons and um, uh, Tasmanian tigers and so on. It's like a fundamental disappointment, but I just worry that it can't be because its world is gone. Like, what's it going to do? It's just going to be a free call of its life. Like, I know when people talk about mammoths and they say they implant a mammoth cl- clone into an Asian elephant, but then what you just have is like a freak outcast elephant. You should probably invest those resources in protecting Asian elephants first. <laughs> Like cloning Asian elephants to enhance their genetic diversity or something is something that actually would, would seem to be something more valuable than doing it. But again, like as Ellie hints at and Malcolm does in sort of broader strokes, it's just their world is gone. You think about how hard it is for you know some humans to adjust like to different settings or different life events. Like how are they supposed to learn their lives as well? Like what will their parents be? We'd have to try and like train them surrogately in lives we don't necessarily even understand. In essence, you're making like a Frankenstein's monster. Like it's, it's just it's going, to be, going a, to be an imitation yeah. of something that, of our perception of what it should be rather than what it actually was. So obviously the thing with dinosaurs is that DNA decays too quickly. We can't get like enough genetic material from things of that age to clone them. The oldest genomes we have are only like a couple of hundred thousand years old, I think. And those are from things that either died in caves or in permafrost. It has been suggested that an alternative would be to like reverse engineer birds to express dinosaurian traits. And so there's like this this perception of like the chickenosaurus of like, you no know, genetically modifying a chicken. But that's just completely pointless. All you're doing is creating a mutant chicken. <laughs> People say like oh, it could be an educational tool. But the fact that we already know the genetic factors that can be used to switch teeth on in chicken and that chickens and that kind of thing, that shows the link. You don't actually need to create the animal to do it. You will have a dinosaur and that you already have a chicken, which is, you know, a chicken is a dinosaur, but you won't have like a more bona fide dinosaur. You'll just have a mutant chicken. I just, I really don't understand what the purpose is. <laughs> it's sort of like a, a morbid curiosity thing of, of yeah. just doing it because you think it would be cool to look at. 
Because you know that this expression as rare as hens' teeth. That's because hens will very rarely be born with things like teeth. And that's because of like this genetic link. So you can switch off the factors that produce beaks and have teeth instead. But obviously that has, because genes are so interrelated, that has massive ramifications for the animal. I always thought that that was just because hen's teeth didn't exist. So that's... Yeah, it's like very rarely you can get, you know, you'll get like mutant chicks. I don't know if they survive or not, but you can get mutations that result in like tooth buds. But it's also interesting that we can get some of these data and they also teach us things about paleontology. I wouldn't necessarily advocate it if that kind of experimentation was only being used for paleontology, but if it's got like medical and veterinary medical outputs, then I think that's, you know, that's more reasonable. But. Growing up and seeing films like Jurassic Park as a young kid, do you think potentially that has sparked people's interest in becoming a paleontologist? Definitely. There's a lot of people who cite their earliest inspiration as Jurassic Park specifically. It kickstarted Dynomania. Um, so like it massively expanded the amount of like merchandise and stuff you can get and all of this stuff can like spark something in a kid. My biggest influence as a kid was Dinosaurs magazine, which we used to like read religiously. And that was the biggest spark for me. That was probably commissioned because of Jurassic Park. I thought, oh yeah, kids will buy this. Several of my of colleagues my age put that as their inspiration. I think the thing that helps as well is not just because it shows dinosaurs on screen, but it shows like paleontologists as humans on screen as well. Like it's a lot of people, it's not even obvious it would be like a career trajectory. And you can see like obviously fictitious, but still people on screen being this. Also that it's not even all that they are. They're people who do this. And I think that can actually make it probably seem quite attainable as well. My favourite part of this chat has been understanding about how paleontology is as much a study of the current world around us and animals that we have now as it is about mm. dinosaurs and prehistoric life. So that was really interesting for me. So thank you. Something where I think paleontology has actually really revolutionised our understanding of modern animals in like a practical way is that the interest in whether dinosaurs is warm, warm or cold-blooded really led to people breaking down that those are only end members in a whole spectrum of metabolisms. And so this interest in dinosaurs meant that we actually had to look again at something we thought we understood in living animals. And that's like really relevant to like all kinds of, um, not only scientific questions, but like animal husbandry and veterinary questions and that kind of thing. So I think paleo has really helped revolutionize that. I guess also before I go, I should probably do a quick, just to tick the boxes, probably quickly stopping at Dilophosaurus. Best scene of the movie, iconic. Everyone remembers that bit. Partially because I think, you know, it's entertaining, Nedry's entertaining. So I was thinking about Nedry recently. He's a cartoony bad guy in many ways. But there are people who are that banal, and like in real life. I think, like, I think we've come <laughs> yeah. to a stage where often we overcomplicate people. And equally as well, like, Hammond's kind of a dick to him. So I can see why he's so upset. <laughs> but the thing with Dilophosaurus is, so it's the most inaccurate animal in the movie. So Dilophosaurus in real life was bigger, although so the animals on that are not fully grown. It's quite a lot bigger. And they had a very distinctive, like, long snout. And the end of it was, like, hooked downwards at, like, this kinked snout. This is why, like, Michael Crichton, in his book, he had it as venomous, because he thought that, um, you know, the snout was quite weak. So at the time, people thought maybe it was a scavenger or something. He said, thought it was venomous instead. But there's no evidence for venom in any dinosaur. They don't have the hollow or grooved teeth that you would need to deliver venom. And instead, we think Dilophosaurus probably a relatively small prey. The big frill around the neck is entirely fictitious. So the crest on top of the head, the little ones, they're genuine, but there's no evidence of any umbrella-like things around the neck. 
So yeah, it's too small. Its face is wrong. It wouldn't have been venomous and wouldn't have spat or anything. And it wouldn't have had the big sort of frill either. So it's the m- most inaccurate like dinosaur movie, which is a shame, right? Because it's charismatic. So in reality, it would be more like a really unthreatening kind of anteater thing. It would have probably been threatening to a human because it'd be like six meters long <gasps> and it would so it would have been capable of taking human-sized prey. Wow. Particularly like it's got clawed arms, like grab you and like bite you up and everything, but it wouldn't have spat at you. So like, it was one of the biggest carnivores of its day. So you still probably want to tangle with it, but it wouldn't have spat in your face. So, so actually probably equally scary, but just in just a different, in a different way. way. yeah. I guess the thing is, it wouldn't have been a surprise. It would have been more obviously threatening, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't have ambushed as effectively. I think they were accurate in that it probably wouldn't have played fetch. <laughs> like, maybe some would have, I don't know, but they, pro- they probably wouldn't have fetched a stick, so I think that's quite accurate, that's good. Okay, so that's about all we've got time for for our Jurassic Park companion podcast. But we've got loads coming up this week. It's a bumper week for Travelling Symphony Movie Club. Two live watch-alongs. <sighs> Big week. Don't know if you can handle it, Casey. Um, <laughs> well, if there's any more dinosaur chat, then no, probably not. <laughs> so we have our regular scheduled Friday 8pm watch-along, which will have our regular Instagram intro at 7.45 on our account at TS Movie Club. Um, the details for how to vote on what to watch will be coming out very, very soon. But then we also have our Saturday special watch-along of Bend It Like Beckham, which is going to be shown for free on YouTube by Lionsgate, the UK distributor. And we're very much hoping that we'll be able to get Gorinda Chatter, the director of Bend It Like Beckham, back onto Travelling Symphony to do another live introduction, post-one conversation and watch-along with us. We're not 100% confirmed on that, but we are very much hoping that'll be the case. We're sending out happy thoughts. We're sending out happy thoughts and we're optimistic, I would say. So make sure you keep across our social media accounts. That's at TS Movie Club on both Twitter and Instagram. Those will be your best places to find out exactly when and where we'll be watching. And don't forget, you can also join our Discord text chat, which is becoming ever more busy throughout the week, I would have to say. So if you just follow our link in our bio of either our Instagram or our Twitter, you can find all the information right there. So in a couple of days, we'll have our preview podcast for Bend It Like Beckham, and we will speak to you very, very soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye, 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 bye-bye.